0: You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FBBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers, F up the Black Police. Feds and our movements, for Black Leadership roads. But we still here, in the bill here, up bro. Pro. Show. They got me started, lion hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. King Khalid Muhammad We gon' make your day a holiday I fuck okay, me, i mad Free the Black Panthers fvbp Stand for Free the Black Panthers And fuck the Black Police That 13th Amendment Tryna make a slave of me You can like my body, can't trap my mind Not to ever be free Okay, Free the Black Panthers fvbp Stand for Free the Black Panthers And fuck the Black Police they infiltrated our movements from black leadership ship but we still been build here been a here upcoins hell RBG, 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 RBG My sisters, my brothers, the counselor, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and regardless, regardless, my heart just don't fall on misogyny foods that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock upped up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated. Damn Unify or die. nvpp.org.
1: We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or an indigenous service unless you commit a crime amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government we never had any say in that
2: we need our own nation so everyone should see a um, message pop up that this meeting is being recorded and i'll hand it over to you michelle
3: awesome thank you welcome everyone nice to see you all i am calling this meeting to order at 2.04 p.m Of the african heritage reparation assembly monday november 7th pursuant to chapter 20 of the acts of 2021 this meeting will be conducted via remote means members of the public who wish to access the meeting may do so via zoom or by telephone no in-person attendance of members of the public will be permitted but every effort will be made to ensure the public can adequately access the proceedings in real time via technological means I'm going to go ahead and do a sound check. Um, I believe that both Hala and Yvonne will not be able to join us today. Alexis, I'm very happy to see you. I wanted to uh, speak with you about dates because I know you said Mondays are starting to be tough. So we'll do that too. Um, so let's start with you, Ms. Bridges. I'm right here. Okay, we can hear you.
4: Dr. Rhodes. Oh, here, and I can hear. I can hear, and I can. I assume I can be seen.
3: Very well seen, Dr. Rhodes. <laughs> you are seen.
5: <laughs>
3: um, Pamela. Oh, I'm here. Okay, excellent. Uh, and Alexis.
4: Good to be here. Thank you.
3: Great. And Dr. spaz. Presente. All right. And Jennifer, I think just let's... You're good? I can hear you. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, Hala, I didn't read your text in full, so I just told the group I didn't know if you were joining us. I'm so happy you're here. (laughs) Yes. A little bit choppy, but um, I did hear your voice come through. Can you hear us? Yes. Great. All right. So... Um, Welcome, everyone. Before we move into our agenda items, I wanted wanted to take just a couple minutes um, for those of us who were able to join the Mojuba event yesterday that was co-hosted by the Black Assembly of Amherst, Massachusetts, and Bridge for Unity. I first want to just really give a very deep and heartfelt thank you to the folks who sponsored and organized that event. Um, It was extraordinarily powerful and um, very, very meaningful, so would love to hear Um, from Dr. Shabazz and Hala and Dr. Rhodes um, about that just a little bit. I see before we do that that Ms. Bridges' hands is up.
6: Yes. um, I was a little disturbed of something, so it it disturbed my heart so much that I had to write it down. And I just wanted to read something, um, and I have to leave because I have... A very important I appointment, but yeah. just let me get this out. I might stumble but it's something that I need to say. Um, as you know, my purpose of joining this committee um, was to add a descendant voice to the history of my ancestors that have been left out of the committee's initial reports. But we deserve, I feel, to have a voice in how our stories are told and shared and I wanted to make sure future generations know about the everyday Blacks at the roots of Amherst history, where, you know, I wholeheartedly support events that share the Black history of Amherst. I was disheartened to read that the event yesterday that was promoted and supported by this committee claimed that it was, I quote, likely the first public event in Amherst to incorporate an honoring of black ancestors. Uh, this is not only not the truth, but it's offensive and it spreads information that the, to the community. I feel it causes harm to those who have done so before yesterday, who experienced oh. the harm we are charged to repair, um, including myself. Um, they date back decades and recently is June 2021 the Juneteenth Heritage Walk in June 2022 in the, Hysteri- in the Ancestral Bridges exhibit that closed this past Saturday. All included direct descendants honoring their Black ancestors in their burial ground of West Cemetery. Statements that moved the discovery of such, uh, it just acknowledges to yesterday, erase those that came before. And I was... I'm just very disturbed at it. And I just wanted you to know, sorry I have to leave the meeting, but please take what I said as coming from my heart. Because to read that, it was very disturbing. But I wish you all a good day. I got to go and I'll see you at the next meeting.
3: Thank you, Ms. Bridges. Thank you. You're welcome. Sharing that from your heart. We really appreciate it. Um, my dog is deciding that he wants to bark something outside. So um, if we could just take a minute to pause here, I'm going to let my dog go outside and we'll be right back in just a second. All right. Um, So let's just check in here as a committee. I really want to honor Ms. Bridges' statement and voice, Um, and I don't feel personally comfortable pursuing any conversation about Ms. Bridges' statement while she is not in the room. Um, So what I would like to ask is that we hold that uh, close to our heart and that if Ms. Bridges would like to talk further about it in our next meeting we allow there to be space for that to happen next meeting. In the meantime, if there's anything that any individual member feels like they would like to pursue individually with Ms. Bridges um, with respect to her statement, I would encourage that. Um, So I do want to uh, just come back to the... So I started off by seeing if there was anybody who would like to speak in particular about the event that occurred yesterday. Um, It does feel a little bit unsettling to talk about it again without Ms. Bridges here, given the context of her statement. Um, However, if anybody would like to speak to the event, um, this would be the time to do that now, and we'll leave just a minute to do that. All right. Yeah. Yes, Alexis.
7: I'll just say I, I regret not being able to be there in person, but I, I want to thank Dr. Shabazz for live streaming because that allowed me to um, join in. So, so thank you for that. I appreciate it.
3: All right. And I think I saw um, Dr. Shabazz. But before we go to you, Dr. Shabazz, I see Pamela's hand is raised. I just wanted to ask
6: a clarifying question. Was the event co-sponsored by
8: this group or sponsored by another group and we just lended support? I'm just trying to, I don't. I know we don't, I think you're, it's appropriate not to talk about it, but I would just like a little bit of information.
3: Sure, um, no, the event was in no way sponsored by the AHRA. Okay. Um, certain members of us sat on the panel Um, and had a dialogue with Dr. Shabazz during the event, Um, but the event was – Dr. Shabazz, why don't you jump in and say who the sponsors of the event were?
4: Absolutely. So um, the genesis of the event uh, is with an intergroup uh, dialogue um, uh, organization called uh, Bridge for Unity uh, that has existed here. Uh, for a number of years and um, attempts to try to promote uh, intercultural and, and uh, interracial understanding uh, through uh, intergroup dialogue as well as small, uh, as well as uh, cultural exchanges. And um, the uh, um, idea was presented of a, uh, uh, a celebration and honoring of the ancestors, African uh, ancestors here in Amherst uh, that would be conducted in a traditional West African, particularly Yoruba uh, 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 ceremony. Uh, And folks who are uh, two of our Bridge for Unity members who are long practitioners uh, um, initiated in uh, this particular uh, uh, West African uh, cosmology, cosmology spiritual system uh, offered to, to uh, create the ceremonial part of the event and uh, and that is what they did and I think the uh, kind of unfortunate thing uh, in the press release and uh, that I think was published in the Indy and perhaps in other places. And in fact, the language of it it was attributed to a statement from me, but uh, not in quote marks, but uh, uh, but attributed to me was saying that it was the first event of this kind to honor black ancestors, but it should have read or it should have been more clear within this West African cultural framework. Um, It was by no means, uh uh is this the first time that ancestors of Amherst I was on the walk uh sponsored by Ancestral Bridges this past Juneteenth. I've been in terms of other activities here, whether in West Cemetery or elsewhere in town honoring uh, uh ancestors, uh African American ancestors. So by no means would I uh, uh wish to make a statement or would make a statement that it's the first time African ancestors when have attended and been a part of events that have done so, uh, uh, multi- multiple events that have done so. So I do very much uh, apologize and, and feel that was an unfortunate way that the language in which that came out. I think the sense of it was more, um, and we didn't even have to reference that as like a first, but I think the, the, the sense of uh, what was conveyed uh, meant to be conveyed in the press release and in what was reported was in the within this West African um, uh, uh, spiritual uh, uh, tradition. It was one of the first times. But again, even that, we didn't necessarily have to say that or emphasize it, but certainly not to say the first that anybody has bothered to, and to honor the ancestors. That, that would not Again, I am a living witness that knows that that's not the first time anything has been done of that sort. So very much apologize for the uh, uh, wording. That came out in the uh, from the from the, the press release on that matter. But overall, I am uh, was very excited. I'm very David excited. Buzz,
3: could I just ask you one moment to pause? I'm going to come back to you. Just seeing that Ms. Bridges rejoined. Um, I just wanted to let Ms. Bridges know if she can hear us. I think she maybe she's traveling. I don't see that her audio is connecting. Um, but I'm just going to say this in the case that Ms. Bridges can hear us. Um, that we agreed, Ms. Bridges, um, that it I did not feel comfortable pursuing a conversation about this without you here, um, and everybody was in agreement about that, and that if there were individual conversations that could happen, or if we could continue the conversation when you were back with us next meeting, that's what we would pursue. Um, Pamela asked just a very direct question for the notes, I think, to ask whether this committee sponsored the event or who it was sponsored by. Um, And the answer to that question is that the AHRA didn't sponsor the event. Um, Members of the AHRA sat on the panel of the event, but it was co-sponsored by Bridge for Unity and the Black Assembly of Amherst, Massachusetts. And I think you came in, Ms. Bridges, when Dr. Shabazz was talking about the genesis of the event, how it came to be, who it was meant to recognize, and in which cultural framework. Um, So if you have any questions or, of course, the video will be available, you could hear through that as well. So I just wanted to make that. And did that clarify the question for you, Pamela? Okay, great. All right. So back to you, Dr. Shabaz, and um, Ms. Bridges. Please, if you can speak and would like to speak, speak, just go ahead and raise your hand. But right now, it looks like your audio is having trouble connecting. Um, okay, Dr. Shabaz, back to
4: you. So just as far as that goes, um, I uh, was very appreciative of uh, of my of the efforts of uh, Rose uh milligan Saki and uh dr trevor uh, baptiste for the energy and the uh, uh uh brilliance and the very very um deep uh careful explanatory way for for folks not very familiar with uh with west african religious traditions spiritual traditions very explanatory about every aspect of it, the libation uh to the ancestors, the cleansing uh with uh, uh, uh the the water uh the um, uh, the whole uh, uh, the egun stick and the uh the ways in which that uh uh you know and and in the Yoruba language the words um, to recall and to remember all our ancestors. Uh, all, all our uh, from the Middle Passage who died on the Middle Passage to uh, to the Americas who were brought here uh, to Massachusetts uh, in chains, enslaved, and uh, in the years of the practice of slavery uh, in, in in Massachusetts, in Amherst in particular, that uh, were very explanatory with everything. I appreciate both of them. They're both wonderful uh, educators and wonderfully uh, um, educational, uh, spiritual uh, uh, folks. So very much appreciated that that was one part of it. The event was three parts. One part was that part. The second part was the opportunity for, uh, members of the AHRA that could attend to update about where our process is. And then the third part consisted of an inter, of breaking out into small breakout groups to discuss, uh, uh, ideas and, and, uh, um, uh, feelings about the reparative justice process in Amherst, and then to report that that back in to the big group and followed finally by that by some delicious food courtesy of uh, 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 the black sheep the blue blue heron restaurant and uh, hazels uh, so uh, that 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 was the whole the whole enchilada for those who could, who attended all of it and uh, uh, seems to have uh, been well received.
3: Thanks, Doctor Shabazz. It really was a quite a moving and beautiful event and I will say um that the the chorus the choir, excuse me, um was just holla. I just wanna say <laughs> when you were singing with your hand in the air and your fist like up, I it was so incredibly moving and touching and I just thank you um, for for what you brought to that and what the whole choir brought. So that was a piece that really moved me. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> um, and um, Dr. Shabazz, do you see an opportunity to offer in our next meeting a reporting of some of the feedback that was received? Um, in when it came back from the smaller groups. Okay, great. That would be really good I think for us if you think it's appropriate feedback for this body to have in terms of our work. That would be great. All right. Um anything else on that? All right. So, um we Just, um, I'm going to give a quick update on two things, and then I'm going to pass, hopefully everyone received the email I sent today with Dr. Shabazz's position paper. Um, He will be presenting that to us today. Dr. Rhodes and I have a hard stop today at three o'clock because we have a meeting set with the Donahue Institute, so this is update number one. We are going to meet with the Dunahue Institute um, to further the discussion that we've been having around a survey um, and developing a survey that uh, the AHRA can use to reach members of the community. Um, We have asked, I have asked our council president to join us in that conversation because it's possible that the survey that we will conduct will include surveying around public health as well as community safety. Um, and so we're going to have a discussion with the Dunhu Institute today at three o'clock, and we will report back to you at our next meeting on that. Um, the second update that I wanted to offer is um, hold on. I do have it. <laughs> um, okay. Yes. Um, I wanted to offer an update on the July 5th incident. So a couple weeks ago, I had updated the committee to say that I had made a motion that would evoke this committee or members of this committee to participate in another committee for a reconciliation process. And my vote um, did not pass through the council. It was a very close vote. Um, It lost by one vote. Um, and I recommend that everybody, if they haven't already, take a look at the video and the discussion because um, it was a very rich and thoughtful um, and I think challenging discussion that the council had around that. So um, there isn't anything in terms of that that we need to be doing right now as a committee. However, I do want to leave um, some some. Perhaps uh, for this committee to think about if there's anything um, that it would like to process around that. Um, It won't be today, but uh, we could certainly, if I hear from committee members that processing that in any way would be helpful, or if any action that this committee would like to take, um, for example, a letter to the council sponsored by the committee itself, or something of that nature, um, we could think about that. So are there any questions about either of those updates, the survey or the July 5th? Yes, Alexa. Are you looking
7: for the questions just specifically about those updates or like discussion about those updates?
3: Um, anything, anything. We, I, I wanted to um, at least give Dr. Shabazz a full, so if we have about five or six minutes so we can keep discussion going right now.
7: Okay. So I I guess I just wanted to ask in the event that the second motion doesn't pass, um, and and I'm confused about all these rules. I'm going to be honest with you. So are you able to bring forward the same motion again, or like what happens if motion two doesn't pass?
3: That's a great question. So um, right now what's happening is, There is a motion on the floor, which is known as Motion 6. Um, Lynn brought that motion, and that motion got tabled to tonight's meeting. In the meantime, Lynn asked that counselors provide any amendments or new motions. There were amendments that were provided. I provided a new motion. Um, All of those can be found in the packet for tonight's town council meeting. However, I am aware that Lynn will be making a motion, which I believe will pass, to postpone the discussion in its entirety to next Monday um, so that it has a designated time for it. Um, Tonight is the town manager evaluation uh, as well as a tax classification hearing and uh, financial indicators. So it's probably going to be an after-midnight meeting, (laughs) as it is, and I think that's a good call. I, I really struggle to see it keep getting postponed, but it is good to have its own designated time. So if you'd like to see the amendments to the current motion, the new motion that I'm proposing, I'm proposing that motion in addition to whatever else because my motion is specific to the incident itself. Um, It calls for an apology. It calls for a record of events. And it calls for research, legal research, into compensatory repair models, options. Um, So you could take a look at that and um, feel free to reach out with any questions to me individually and be happy to answer them. Dr. Schmutz?
4: Yeah, I'll keep it very short just to say that, um, you know, the original uh, idea of formulating a working group that would include a representative from um, from this body, from AHRA, along with representatives from the Human Rights uh, Commission, as well as representatives from the Community Safety and Social Justice Committee, along with counselors, I thought was a, a reasonable way Way to proceed. I supported it, and I was especially supportive because I was hearing in discussion, and I heard at that last meeting, Councillor uh, Greismer um, bring up this notion of, you know, based upon discussions and and uh, our process within AHRA that nothing could be done relative to compensation uh, based upon you know the, the findings of kp law and what was what was again what's been generated in our process and i was a little you know um thought that that's where we could perhaps shed clarity in that you know our, our process is is one thing it's very different from this specific event the two should not be confused and that yes as this process is one that before any kind of direct payments or anything of that sort as part of the reparative justice plan we will submit, it will have to you know we understand it's going to go through this state legislative process it would need to go through this at least is what the attorneys had recommended and uh, and that will take some time but uh, uh, i i want it i feel a h r a as we get into. Some of the specifics of, of of items that could come under the reparative justice plan. To keep in mind the justice gap. To keep in mind the harm area of of crime and punishment, criminal the criminal justice system, and that there that uh, we are hearing the the need for uh, that perhaps um, funds could go as one priority area to be able to. Um, compensate uh, in in situations where uh, uh, the criminal justice system or some aspect of it has uh, has operated in a in a racially unfair manner or or, or discriminatory manner, but um, I think we 're going to need to d- discuss that one a whole lot more because first of all i don 't think the reparative justice fund would be appropriate in instances that actually are, you know, dealing with con- immediate contemporary events that um, might need to be mediated or, or dealt with in some other way. And, um, and, and that we should not be used to say that, you know, you can't mediate and, 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 uh, or, or address those, hopefully outside of a lawsuit framework Uh, the town can't address those unless it's in the AHRA process. So I don't want to get too too deep into the woods on it, but just to say that I did support the idea, and I think it is something we ought to, I, I have heard brought up before of whether the Reparative Justice Fund, one of the areas we might recommend, is how it could deal with instances like this. And that's going to be something we we might want to spend some time talking about down the road.
3: Thank you for that, Dr. Shabazz. Um, and, Alexis, I realize I didn't answer your question as directly as I'd like to. So um, let me just say this one more piece. Um, yes, I could certainly bring back that motion. Um, I chose not to because at this time, because, one, it didn't get the support um, the first time around. Um, that it needed to pass. And two, because the new motion that I've put forward hopes to deal directly with what the committee would have dealt with. So the apology, so a record keeping of what occurred, the compensatory pieces. Um, And so While I really wanted the committee to be put in place to do that work, um, given that it didn't get the support that it needed, I chose a different strategy for this time. Thanks for asking that. Are there any other questions or comments about this? Dr. Shabazz, your hand is still up. Okay. Um, Anything else? Dr. Rhodes, Hala, Pamela, Jennifer, Alexis. All right. Okay. So I'm going to pause before we turn things over to Dr. Shabazz to um, talk about his um, position paper and his framework that he'll be presenting to us today and do a public comment period. Uh, So I am calling public comment now And if you'd like to make a comment, please go ahead and raise your hand. I will call on you and um, ask that you state your name and your address, and you'll have up to three minutes. We normally do not uh, respond, but we will be listening closely and sometimes can respond if there's a direct question. So if you'd like to make a public comment, please go ahead and raise your hand, and we will bring you into the room. Uh, yes, Jennifer would like to make a public comment. <laughs> no,
2: but can you guys approve the minutes so I can get those posted and then give you guys another um, set of minutes? Proof?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, does everyone feel that they are prepared to approve the 615, seven six, and 725 meeting minutes? All right, great. So I will move to approve the 615, seven six. And 725 2022 meeting minutes. Is there a second? Oh, okay. I I think it was Alexis, <laughs> and then Dr. Rhodes. Um, so let's start with you, Hala. Okay, we'll come back. Uh, Alexis. Yes. Dr. Rhodes. Hi. Dr. Spaz. Yes. I am also a yes. Um, so for now, I think can we put Hala as absent from the vote, or how would you like to record that, Jennifer?
5: Um, abstain. I, I'm just, yeah.
3: Okay. I think they pass. Um, I just say aye. By oh, uh, perfect. I'm sorry. I didn't hear you. <laughs> didn't hear you. Awesome. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Thank you. All right. So just to give some context, Dr. Shabazz, do you plan to share screen? Okay. So um, for folks who are listening, I just will briefly say that Dr. Shabazz has been working on um, a a framework for us to consider as we move into eligibility criteria and um, use of funds and all of that. Uh, stuff that we'll be discussing, and so he is going to present that to us now, and that will give us an opportunity then to begin that discussion. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Dr. Shabazz.
2: Dr. Shabazz, are you able to share screen?
4: screen I, I won't share? need to. I, I thought about trying to do a PowerPoint, but uh, I'm you've you've had the. Um, the, the paper presented to you ahead of time, and, and I'm just going to highlight a few things very quickly. Uh, recognizing there is a, uh, there is a hard stop uh, for many of us. So um, with that, let me say that uh, there's great interest, and it is very important for the for AHRA to grapple with the question of who is owed and who should receive reparations in Amherst. Who and um, the uh model that i am recommending to us uh for approval is what i think of as a, as a uh an inclusionary model one that is not based upon uh restrictiveness but is one that also recognizes uh, uh certain uh critical priorities and targets for who is owed um it there are 3 um Elements for us as a local, um, uh, locally based uh, reparative justice planning group, and uh, there are uh, then the three criterion uh, areas are residency, lineage, and identity. Uh, The uh, model so on the residential standard, uh, the inclusionary model recognizes. That the uh, in terms of who should receive reparations or the benefits of a reparative justice plan should first and foremost prioritize those who live in Amherst, uh, and uh, and so residency in Amherst is thus a a critical priority area. But I don't. Uh, but when I speak of an inclusionary model, I like for us to recognize that those not living in Amherst uh, may have a stake as well as what happens here. So, for example, uh, uh, a 19-year-old who is away at at at, at college or in the military. Or uh in some other form of service that requires them to be outside of Amherst most of the year or uh, uh, or at a point where temporarily their residency is no longer here in Amherst, they're not voting here, they're not paying taxes here, they are living. Elsewhere, but that this is not necessarily a permanent uh, a, a permanent uh, uh, position or a permanent residency for them, and they do look to come back. In my view, then they should not be excluded from the conversation. They should not be excluded from our, uh, in regards to our residential standard, but that for uh, uh, in terms of our planning. Uh, 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 and, and, and in terms of who we're listening to, but that, again, we do recognize as a priority area those uh, in relation to the residential standard, those who are living in Amherst now. Secondly, the lineage standard. The lineage standard has particularly uh, come up almost from the, the, as this conversation has really begun to take off. Uh, and and what this references uh, is the uh debate over um uh, that when we talk about uh black people, people of African descent, people of African heritage and whatnot that um, we have to delineate or distinguish amongst those Black people, though amongst the Black population in the United States, those who have a lineage that goes back in time to uh, 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 over generations, multiple generations, and in fact, goes back in time to at, having at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. This would effectively exclude uh, people who have just arrived here in the United States. They could be uh, African, they could be a black, and, a, um, 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 and they could even have achieved citizenship. And they could even be a taxpayer uh, over decades here in Amherst, but the fact that they were, uh, that they're, they don't have a presence in the United States that extends over multiple generations back to an ancestor enslaved in the United States by the the by some uh, uh, models of or or definitions of the lineage standard, they would therefore be excluded. From who is owed, who should receive benefits, and who should even be uh, considered as part of the planning purposes of a reparative justice process. I disagree with that. I think instead what we need to assert is that those who meet that lineage uh, criterion, that standard in terms of having an ancestor who was enslaved in the United States, should be a priority area within our reparative justice planning. should be a should be prioritized in certain respects of benefits uh, that that might be extended through our reparative justice plan if, if acted upon when acted upon by the town council, but should not, uh, um, uh, but that should not mean that those who do not meet that criteria should be completely excluded. So for example, someone whose family might have come here from the Caribbean uh, in the late 1800s, or come here in the early 1900s, and have been here over multiple generations in Amherst, but simply for the fact that they don't have an ancestor that was enslaved in the United States, we would say in this inclusionary model, you are embraced. There may be benefits that could be extended through uh, our reparative justice plan that could encompass those who don't have an ancestor uh, that was enslaved in the United States. But again, we, this model would recognize that that group, Uh, with that multi-generational experience in the United States with an ancestor enslaved in the United States is a priority area and is one that our planning process should recognize, uh, particularly in that part of our rationale is that we are attempting to pave the way for federal reparations in which the lineage standard may well be the framework of of federal reparations. Finally, there is the identity standard. And the identity standard is whether one defines themselves, identifies as Black, as of African heritage, as uh, an African-American. And again, by uh, uh, some advocates for, for reparations, especially in defi- making the case for reparations at the federal level, they have insisted that the that there be an identity standard uh, and one model goes that uh, from the announcement of a reparative justice uh, uh, program uh, so for example we 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 submit our report in june of twenty twenty three it's read it's digested let's say in the July or in the in the august uh, uh, uh council meeting aspects of that plan or that plan is approved and adopted, and a reparative justice program begins to to be implemented um, The view of one model is that persons who uh would Uh, apply for or who might receive benefits must prove that they uh, had identified as black for at least 12 years before the start of the reparative justice program. So if we said August of 2023, we announce a program, then they would have to prove going back to at least, let us say, 2020, I mean, 2010, that they have some type of documented proof. Of having identified as black or been identified as black, it could be the census return from two thousand ten. It could be a driver 's license from somewhere. it could be some form of official government uh, 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 a document that identifies them uh, um, as as black or that uh, african American and that they 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 were so identified and they Profess that as their identity. What this really answers is a question one counselor raised some time back. What about mixed-race people? Would mixed-race people be eligible? And the answer then is resoundingly yes, as long as that mixed-race person, in addition to identifying as mixed-race, also identified as black. And that doesn't go without saying. There could be some who have simply listed themselves and simply identify themselves as mixed race, and that doesn't tell you if they identify as black. So one would have to have documentation under, under, uh, uh, within this um, identity standard that you may have identified as another race. You may have identified as mixed race, but that you have also documentation of identifying as black as of African descent. So for us in this inclusionary model, we recognize that identity standard, we acknowledge it as um, one that may be appropriate at the federal level and one that we should bear in mind with re- in relation to our our planning, uh, but that we are not strictly, um, but that we can also uh, um, embrace folks that may not have uh, a proof uh, prior, 12 years prior. But at least but in my view, if they identify at the point of the reparations program, they still may be considered um, as eligible. But uh, uh, so that is in some the, uh, uh, the discussion that I raised on the three identity standards and this inclusionary model is one that acknowledges, uh, some of the frameworks that are being discussed that have been put forward at the federal level and, but acknowledges them as simply areas that we could recognize and build some of our planning around, but that not necessarily, ex- uh, uh, relying completely on that for restrictive purposes, at least in our planning, planning uh, area. So it gives widest latitude for encompassing people uh, as we move into defining benefits and defining uh, different ways in which the the uh, uh the funds and the programs that we ultimately in, uh, endorse and put within our plan, it gives widest latitude for for projects, ideas, uh, proposals to be incorporated uh, for people, both with those, in those priority areas, as well as maybe not within those priority areas. I open for questions.
3: Thank you, Dr. Shabazz. Uh, I saw Alexis's hand and then Dr. Rhodes.
8: Yeah, Dr. Rhodes can you go first.
4: So uh, this came in today, at least as I saw it today. There's a lot to unpack here. And there's a lot of uh, thought that needs to go into it to make it worthy of being able to respond to it, given your efforts, Dr. Shabazz. So I, I, I'm definitely not ready to talk about it because I'm really still unpacking it. And I printed it out and I started marking through it. And so, you know, uh, in order for me to uh, offer any kind of meaningful feedback, I would have to have a little bit more time. I think that's a
3: really fair point for everybody. Um, I appreciate Dr. Shabazz having gotten it to me and I only got it to you all today. Um, And so was hoping Dr. Shabazz would present it to us. It would go into the packet and then we'll have a week to digest it, formulate questions, Um, and be able to have a really meaningful discussion about it next week. Um, Alexis.
7: Thank you. Thank you for this work, by the way, Dr. Schwaz. I appreciate you putting all of that together. Um, So I have a complicated thing to throw in here because um, just because my life is complicated, and so why not speak from my experience, right? So um, being that I have and and I guess I'm wondering you know is you know if 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 a and b aren't necessarily um verifiable, and I know that that puts you know throws a wrench in it because the genealogy aspect you could be and and I guess I'm wondering and i I know that like quantifying things have been extremely problematic in the past um I'm wondering, I guess, if if that applies to anything. Because, and here's my thing, right? So, I wasn't allowed, at least on my birth certificate, to say that I wasn't white because my grandma and my mom decided that that was a politically smart idea. Um, not that I didn't wasn't born out of a black woman, right? But like. Politically speaking, um, that was a decision made outside of me. Um, and that's not to say that um, in census reports and stuff like that and like you know in the saps and and the MCAS and whatever else that we had to say where we had to check the boxes about what we were, um, it was always um, African American and white. Um, but I guess like for me, that data is very sometimes it's this, sometimes it's this. And it was based off of the information that I was receiving from my black family members. That's the one piece, right? The second piece is that, um, and and that was for very particular reasons, and I'm going to be fast about this. But the second piece is that I was able to trace back my genealogy only so far um, because of course, right, being when you have enslaved ancestry, not everything gets recorded and not everything lasts. So I was able to trace back my ancestry um, to Robert E. Lee on my black side. And his son was Peter Lee, who was labeled, you know, in the records as being a mulatto. And from there, they married black, 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 until my mom messed it up. I'm just joking. But, you know, it was basically like that, right? And so that's reaching back to, like, 18. Something. I know Robert E. Lee was born in, like, 1805, and so I know for a fact that Peter Lee was not enslaved, but his mother has – there's absolutely no records at all to be able to find his mother, and I highly doubt that this, that this person consensually had a baby with Robert E. Lee, right, um, who was obviously not white. So um, I guess I'm wondering, in the event that you don't have lineage proof – through paperwork, um, and being that I had literally a black mother, I guess I'm wondering, like, how, how do you prove that, especially when my data is all jumbled up,
4: right? May I make a quick response, Chair? Uh, folks. Yes, yes. Indeed. I just want, first of all, express appreciation for, for your sharing, for your honesty in respect of this, and to say this is exactly the complexity that, I am wrestling with and I'm trying to contend with in this position paper that um, uh, many of the frameworks that have been written about and been pushed at the federal level, and most notably, in my reparations seminar, we have been diving into Darity and Mullen's book, From Here to Equality, and uh, we've been tearing it up, that there are so many holes, there are so many areas that this blanket kind of approach that they take don't anticipate, Uh, and so I wanna highlight, first of all, with respect to the lineage complexity. This is where I believe our in our final plan, we ought to endorse We ought to consider endorsing a motion uh, to state government and federal government to, as one step of reparations, to fund the availability of, of DNA and genealogical research for people of African descent to avail themselves of who want to. Because to try and have to do this on your own, and then consider this, we talk about the wealth gap. If you're poor, where are you going to get the resources to hire a genealogist or to hire, uh, uh, you know, to pay these 200, 300, whatever dollar kits, DNA kits, and then get the interpretation from it to then be able to go and prove you deserve reparations? Who's Who's got those thousands of dollars available? Because let me tell you, professional genealogists are not, are not cheap, okay? So who's, going to, who's able to do that, all right? So that is a, is a question I don't see in From Here to Equality. I don't see from advocates that, that push this lineage standard as, as like, you know, fixed you know, and, and we've even gotten letters to, to our, our assembly, you know, saying we're treasonous because we don't hold to to a strict lineage standard. Well how do you, how are we supposed to prove this? You're just gonna show up there for your you expect the federal government to go to go do all of that? That's not how benefits work. The benefits work from the federal in the case of the Japanese, you had to show you had to come and present the evidence that you had uh, that you were interned, or that you had a parent or grandparent who was interned to get your twenty thousand dollars. Now, what the, the the support group, the advocacy group for Japanese reparations did is they, you know, got support together to go and do a lot of that. Documentation and to get from the government because the government kept records on all the people they locked up in the internment camps. So they did a lot of that legwork to to get the evidence to create the role of who got the twenty thousand dollar checks. Okay, but how do you do this for potentially thirty six million African Americans uh, or more? Actually, more that that could be eligible uh, under the under the the, the federal uh, plan. So somebody's got to take responsibility to, uh, I think the federal government ought to take responsibility to help provide the genealogical research and the DNA research, uh, the finding your roots, if you will, for African Americans, of which this is one of the direct harms that broke us from having any kind of of. Uh, 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 ability to trace our, our lineage like that. So that's one area with respect to the lineage. On the identity one, this is another important complexity that, again, by my recognizing the, uh, the issue of, uh, that some have raised of the need to show documentation at more than a decade before the start of the reparations program, that just saying that can be easy for the policymaker or for the you know the economist to 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 come up with that but the implications on the ground for masses of people can also be be, be uh, challenging in ways you have to really think about you know faced with a white supremacist structurally racist system a white parent and a black parent it is in my mind completely reasonable that they might opt to say in a choice of what bubble to, to fill out, they might say W and not say black and not or not say other or not say multiple. Okay? And it is their choice to do so. But then what does that mean down the line with respect to a reparative justice process in which that infant had no choice, at the point that those 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 boxes were that that W box was checked what does that say for them are they thus you know their 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 entitlement to to what is owed negated because of the decisions being made between one or both parents to to mark the W box even when they could perhaps prove the lineage standard you know, and show that they had an ancestor who was enslaved through their black side. They could still then be be disqualified on the basis of the identity standard. So I think, again, what you've just presented highlights some of the the complexities that I think as we grapple with this on the local level, my recommendation is to have this inclusionary model that acknowledges... The, the priority areas or the targets or the, the, the standards that have been raised at the, for the federal uh, uh, rep- reparative justice process, but doesn't, but doesn't limit our attention strictly to those, uh, uh, to, to, to those more res- restrictive standards that have been advocated.
3: Thank you, Dr. Shabazz. And we will um, certainly have much more conversation around this. That was really rich and very appreciative to you, Alexis, for sharing that personal piece to give us um, this ability to discuss these nuances and the complexities. Um, Dr. Rhodes, if you want to jump off while I po- call one more public comment to get on with Kerry, feel free to do that. <laughs> That didn't take long. (laughs) Uh, I'm just going to call one more public comment to see if there is anybody in the audience who would like to make a public comment. Um, You are able to just go ahead and raise your hand, please, and we will bring you into the room. You have up to three minutes to make a public comment, and we will be listening very carefully to you. Okay. Not seeing any, just want to thank the attendees who joined us today. Really, really appreciate you being here and um, please um, continue to join us. Um, (laughs) I can't really see what you're showing, but um, okay. So are there any other comments or questions by counselors or Pamela and Jennifer? All right, and Alexis, I'll touch base with you about scheduling, and um, may everyone have a beautiful week, and we'll see each other next week again, and I'm going to adjourn
4: at 3.02 p.m.
3: Thank you. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Bye.
4: Jennifer, if you could keep it open for a second just for uh, me to reach out to Pamela. And, Michelle, you can can go. This is – I I just been wanting to say to you, Pamela, I've been very interested in
8: Hello and welcome to this special edition of Represent NYC on Manhattan Neighborhood Network. I'm Julie Walker. Today we will be talking about financial reparations for slavery. How do we as a country, a state or even a city make amends for the enslavement of the approximately four million Africans and their descendants? men and women who were enslaved in the United States and the colonies that became the United States. The first question we have to ask is can the legacy of slavery be untangled from its economic impact on America? The fact is African slaves unwillingly played a major role in building the infrastructures of the United States. Slaves were a free labor force that was the cornerstone of a flourishing economy a free labor force that here in New York literally built Wall Street and expanded Lower Manhattan. Can our nation or our city make amends for the exploitation or the lynching? Can it undo the cumulative effects of the Jim Crow laws, redlining, and injustices experienced by African Americans during slavery and after it officially ended? If the United States owes a financial debt to the modern-day descendants of slaves, then the solution, some say, is reparations. and other northern cities, accrued vast wealth from slave labor and profited for centuries from dealing in the slave trade. According to historians, the first 11 enslaved people were owned by the Dutch West Indian Company for the purpose of building up New Amsterdam, or as we call it now, New York City. New York City was a major hub of the African slave trade. The first slave auction was held in Lower Manhattan in 1655, and an official slave market opened in 1711 by the East River on Wall Street, between Pearl and Water Street. Africans who passed through the Wall Street slave market contributed to the prosperity of some very famous companies that are still around today. Between 1732 and 1754, Black slaves accounted for more than 35% of the total immigration through the Port of New York. Slaves made up about 25% of the population. Earlier this month, I spoke to Dr. Ron Daniels with the National African American Reparations Commission and Linda Day, Professor of Africana Studies at Brooklyn College, about the fight for reparations in New York. Professor Day, can you please provide us with a brief history of slavery in New York for those who may not know? So the enslaved population really grew
9: after 1626 when the uh, colonists, the New Amsterdam uh, West India, Dutch West India Company, decided that they needed to bring Africans into New York what became New York, for the purposes of labor and doing some of the heavy work of building the colony. So, the New York City slave market really grew after the British took over in the 1700s. And uh, the population of enslaved people in New York was 20 percent or more at various times. And indeed, it exceeded the number of enslaved persons in other colonies in the 13 colonies uh, other than Virginia for the longest time, up until the federal period. So it wasn't until 1827 that technically um, slavery in New York or people to be enslaved, born in New York, became illegal. But to have a person that was enslaved in New York was not uh, finally uh, illegal until the 1840s.
8: So what are some of the ways that New York benefited from the slave trade, even after it was abolished, and how did this impact generational wealth? Well,
9: certainly there were people in New York, many of the wealthy bankers, industrialists, factory owners, shipbuilders, shipmakers, were involved in the products of enslavement after slavery, because the the northern industrialists were working to refine the sugar that was made in the South, to refine the cotton that was grown by enslaved persons in the South. So Brooklyn, New York, people like the Livingstons were wealthy because of their work in the slave trade and because of their shipbuilding operations. So there was a lot of wealth that was created in New York on the backs of enslaved people from the South. And at the same time, the people that were in the enslaved population were losing every generation. There was no way for them to accumulate property while they were enslaved, and it was even difficult to maintain family ties when children were being sold away from their parents, wives were sold away from their husbands. It was difficult to even
8: maintain familial uh, ties in those days. So turning now to Dr. Daniels, you are the convener of the National African American Reparations Commission. Can you briefly tell us the mission of your organization and how it was founded?
10: Well, the mission of the National African American Reparations Commission is to, uh, first and foremost, to create a 10-point reparations program, which we have. And that 10-point reparations program is designed to be a frame of reference for reparations initiatives around the country. In addition to that, we're supporting H.R. 40, which is the bill first introduced by Congressman John Conyers in 1989, uh, which is initially a bill to study whether or not uh, enslavement warranted reparations. Uh, because of the involvement of the folks who are part of the commission, including the organization in COBRA, uh, we've changed that bill now to a study, a remedy bill. So it's no longer the bill which is now before Congress, which is being uh, sponsored by Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee is a bill to study reparations proposals for African-Americans, which means that we're now in the remedy phase. So in broad terms, we have a, a number of outstanding commissioners. We work very closely with the CARICOM reparations commission. There are a lot of people who don't, are not aware that in the Caribbean there is a CARICOM reparations commission. It has a 10-point program. We work very closely with them, but we also do work in communities. So. The work that we've done at the national level has helped to be synergistically related to some of the work that's being done here in New York, particularly in terms of the introduction of the bill uh, in both the House and the, I mean, the lower chamber and this and the upper chamber uh, to talk about an HR 40 type bill. And we've just come out of Evanston, Illinois, where in the city of Evanston, uh, uh, Alderman Robin Ruth Sim- Simmons has introduced a bill that was passed, where there will be one. million over the next 10 years to deal with reparations in the city of Evanston. The reason why that's important is as commissions like the ones that are being set up in New York and the kind of research that the professor is doing, it means that we're going to begin to talk about how reparations should actually be paid at the local level in addition to the national level.
8: So, Professor, can you give our viewers an idea of the amount of money we're talking about when it comes to New York profiting from free labor and investing in products that relied on slave labor? Would it be in the thousands, in the millions, and how can examining this history shine a light on the amount of damage done? Well, certainly, for example, something like Citibank. The
9: people that founded Citibank were involved in the slave trade. So there's no, I mean, how can we even calculate the amount of wealth that Citibank controls? so that wealth over time, I mean, we're talking in the millions and millions of dollars if you do aggregate all of the wealth that was created through the slave trade, through, uh, through the products of slave labor, it's, it's in the millions for sure.
8: So, Dr. Daniels, you talked about a 10-point plan that the National African American Reparations Commission rolled out. What are some of the highlights of that plan, and how did the organization come to those conclusions?
10: Well, if I could just also chime in a little bit on this topic, because I think it is not really understood the degree to which the wealth of this country is built on the backs of slave labor, both in terms of the acceleration principle and the multiplier effect, which means that because of this tremendous amount of wealth uh, was generated and indeed was, was built. So I, I really appreciate what the professors laid out uh, in that regard. Well, in, in terms of looking at our 10-point program, we basically looked at what the CARICOM Commission had dealt with and we modeled it in that way. And it's pretty basic. We're looking at issues like housing, economic development, health care, communications. The whole right of return of Africans to go back to Africa should they choose to do so. Sacred sites. Probably here in the state of New York, there are sacred sites that need to be recovered. C- certainly the African burial, burial ground was an example of a sacred site that was there that the community had to fight to preserve. And this is a part of the wound that, that our people suffer. My church, uh, St. Mark AME Church, there's a whole series on PBS about the Iron Coffin Lady because we discovered that in this free community, actually, you know, you had uh, this kind of development. So we've made that contribution, and I think there certain key areas that um, we should focus on. First of all, the whole notion that there should be apology, but there also has to be restitution. And in making that restitution, one of the critical questions we've addressed is whether there should be individual payments and how much and so forth. First of all, you could never pay enough in terms of the damages done to, to our people. But we also want to make a distinction between individual payments, or what we call direct benefits, which can be made if we can find those persons who were directly affected. But that's often where it gets hung up, well, we don't know who they are and so forth. Well, we're saying that we know for sure that the black community was underdeveloped because of this. So no matter who is in the community now, we're looking at how do we collectively benefit that community. So we put forth something called a reparations finance authority, the concept of having a, a, a board, if you will, be created of people from all walks of life, including activists and organizers, who can contribute to making decisions about how reparations would be dissents, dispensed. For example, if, for example, on public land, the United States has plenty of public land, if public land were made available. Then we could create (laughs) hospitals. We could create educational institutions. Well that's not just for Ron Daniels or my family. That is for the totality of the black community to benefit from. So we're focusing very much on what we call community benefits that will accrue to all people of African descent who are in communities around the country.
8: So you mentioned initiatives in other communities. So how has the idea of reparations varied across the nation?
10: well i think it's i think it's just beginning to uh to bubble up and percolate and let me just say that in that regard the movement for black lives has made an extraordinary contribution to that conversation tannahashi Coates with his discussion uh dealing with um redlining because what people should also understand is we're talking about enslavement but we're also talking about all of those discriminatory policies racially exclusive policies that emanated post-emancipation, like the Homestead Act, like the FHA, like the GI Bill, and redlining. Almost In in Evanston, Illinois, this is one of the great questions, that people were being redlined out of their property. They were literally being moved from the lakefront into black communities, which meant wealth was reduced and and whatnot. So what we're finding is around the country, people are just beginning to bubble up with this kind of assertion. (laughs) And you're finding... Uh, uh, students on universities challenging, for example, the University of Chicago or uh, Georgetown University where it's been discovered that these, these institutions have benefited from enslavement and the universities are sort of dragging their feet, but students are coming forth and saying, well, here's where we stand. We're willing to have a portion of our uh, student um, benefits, our student uh, revenue go to, make, to help repair the damage. So there's a series of these things beginning to bubble up. Where the commission comes in is we are working to make sure that reparations is reparations. It's not just ordinary public policy. And what do we mean by that? First of all, the, the party that inflicts the harm cannot define the remedy, fundamental principle. Secondly, there must be remedies in which the people themselves are independently in control of the dispensation and allocation of those resources. So what we're doing is making sure that everything is not just called reparations. We want to make sure that reparations has a certain definition, a set of criteria, which are longstanding in terms of the history of the struggle for reparations and is codified by the guidance of international law.
8: Professor Day, what are some examples of institutional racism, like within housing, banking, and schooling, that occurred since, the, since slavery created disparities for African Americans?
9: Well, uh, Brother Daniels mentioned redlining in Evanston. We had redlining right here in Brooklyn and all through New York and on Long Island. So redlining, um, housing covenants, for example, in Levittown, which had covenants which which barred the sale of those properties to non-Caucasians. And that was in the 40s and the 50s and up until the 60s until various legislations made that kind of racial covenant illegal. So not to mention... Uh, school segregation that came because of residential segregation, and there have been fights over that. Certainly, Malvern on Long Island was the first in New York State to be under a mandate to desegregate their schools, and it caused a great deal of tension in the community. And indeed, um, the black school, which could potentially have been improved with more funding, was simply closed, and those black students, uh, those children, had to walk for miles to the newly integrated white elementary schools in the farthest reaches of their uh, community. So there have been many examples of that kind of thing uh, all through New York. The GI Bill, as uh, Brother Daniels mentioned, was highly discriminatory against who would get loans and under what circumstances. So once people are already impoverished and uh, don't have a lot of wealth, they are then also discriminated against in terms of their ability to accumulate or to borrow more wealth. So the wealth gap continues to grow, has continued to grow over, over the years, such that now the average white household wealth of $100 for that $100, and the average black household has $5.04. So the wealth disparity is great, longstanding, and continues.
8: So, Dr. Daniels, why are reparations so important in this day and
10: age? Well, it's not just this day and age. It's long overdue in this day and age. And what we find, however, is important is the surging interest, the surging coming together of so many institutions. And so that damage has to be repaired. And I want to stress again something the professor talked about in that regard as well. It is understanding the intergenerational benefits and deficits, and it's really very necessary, particularly not only for African Americans, but for whites to understand, it. because very often whites say, I didn't have anything to do with it, but we're not indicting you individually, it's just that there were opportunities opened up to you because of enslavement that African Americans were denied. So with the Industrial Revolution, for example, black people were held in the South as sharecroppers, agricultural laborers, and so forth. It was new, a new form of slavery. <laughs> we could have been brought to the North, and even though that was difficult, because within the context of class, those who were in charge ruthlessly exploited white labor as well. But it was still better to be working in a factory, a foundry, or a plant, or mine, than being locked into sharecropping. So the point is, and then what happened was, in, that, in the period right after the Civil War, this country brought out of Europe 13, 14 million European immigrants came. Now they were, they were able to come in and take advantage of factory jobs with, even though they were low wage, there was no wage in the South. So that wealth, that, that potential and opportunity could be passed on intergenerationally but to african americans it was a deficit. So having that understanding, we have a sense that if in fact people knew better, they would do better. Now, I'm not optimistic that you know the overwhelming majority of people, particularly in the white community will come to understand it because there's something called white privilege as well. But there are there are people. There is a sufficient number of people who can join with what Martin Luther King would call this community of conscience and concern to move this forward. So, for example, the American Civil Liberties Union has recently joined the fray. They're they're helping. They're supporting HR 40. We're working the Commission, with them to have um, hearings around the country and town hall meetings. Uh, Human Rights Watch is about to also do likewise. There are faith organizations that are involved. And we have institutions like Virginia uh, Theological Seminaries just come up and says, we're guilty. We want to figure out what we can do. So there is now a surging interest that we can rise in order to do what uh, Langston Hughes said was never done. He said, America has never ever been America to me. Well, there is the prospect somewhere down the line that there can be a new covenant where reparations really begins to heal first and foremost black communities but in so doing, it will help heal this nation.
8: Why are
9: reparations so important now? There's a lot of tension in this country now. And so much of it does come from people not understanding the real history of this country. There's so many blinders on all over this country. And if there's any way for America to in any way or shape, in any way, shape or form, reach the potential that it has, it has to come to grips with the slavery Uh, sorry, this history, it has to come to grips with this disparity, this racial disparity that's been there, is still there, and will continue to kind of foment tensions unless it's addressed properly. And certainly this uh, push and understanding of the need for reparations and then an implementation of plans to institute reparations for the real history of discrimination in this country, that's, that's a way for the people in America to really begin to come to a better understanding of who we are, what we're about, and how we can go forward.
8: So just briefly, my last question to the two of you, and again just briefly, why does the word reparations seem to scare so many people?
10: Well, I think when it comes to many white America, they think that somehow this is a gift. I mean, why are we giving this away? What this is, I mean, don't black people have mayors now and artists and entertainers and all this? I mean. So why should we do this? And it has nothing to do with me. So it really, in some ways, engenders antagonism. It's because it's not really understood, because real history is not taught in this country. And so when Professor Dayes talks about unpacking real history, uh, this is a part of that process.
8: Professor Day?
9: And, yes, the reparations talks about repairing uh, a disparity, dis- repairing an injustice, But many people don't even know what that injustice is. They don't understand it. And, yes, they think it's something that has nothing to do with them when, in fact, the country is built on it. And 1619 was, as uh, many people have now said, the beginning of the real history of this country. And most people don't have a clue about that real history.
8: Professor Linda Day, thank you very much. Dr. Ron Daniels, thank you as well.
10: It's wonderful being here. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back.
8: Welcome back. Slavery in the U.S. officially ended in 1865, but the trauma of slavery didn't end with the end of the Civil War. After the war, selected slaves were promised reparations in the form of land and mules to farm, 40 acres and a mule. It was called Field Order No. 15, and it set aside confiscated Confederate land for freed slaves. After President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, the new president, Andrew Johnson, reversed this order, giving the land back to its former Confederate owners. We spoke with Professor Jessica Gordon Nemhard about the long history and the cry for reparations.
11: My name is Jessica Gordon Nemhard. I'm professor of community justice and social economic development at John Jay College. The request for reparations started um, back in the 17 and 1800s, especially right after the Civil War, because at least after the Civil War, we had laws in the United States that said that slavery was outlawed. So as soon as we had laws that said that the country recognized that slavery was wrong, that the slave trade was wrong, We've had people petitioning. In the 1790s, there was an organization called the Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association, started by a woman named Callie House, and that organization argued that because enslaved people were workers and hadn't been paid, we at least deserved pensions, if not back pay. Once um, enslavement was over, African Americans were left on their own and had no way, often, make a living to support their family. So it's a long movement that's been responsive to all the different levels of enslavement and oppression and uh, economic injustice that African Americans have suffered here on U.S. soil. New York State was a slave state and didn't abolish slavery until 1799. We have all the sins of being a slave state upon us. New York City has the uh, black burial ground museum and they actually list all the slave codes and the laws black people weren't allowed to be out after dark without a lantern they couldn't own land they couldn't testify in court they couldn't congregate more than three people at a time so they couldn't even go to a funeral so New York State is complicit on the slavery side even though we ended slavery earlier than the federal government did we were actually the last northern state to end slavery any of us today who have inherited any kind of wealth, most of that wealth was on the backs of either enslavement, unpaid labor, or benefiting from the slave trade. Even today, because not just of the past, but the cumulative benefits to one group and the cumulative disadvantages to another group. we need something needs to happen because what's happening right now is not making up for those it's still allowing the people who started out with the benefits to benefit more and more and still leaving other people behind
8: welcome back bill hr 40 calls for a commission to study and develop reparations for african americans this is part of a growing movement for a historical investigation into the long-term effects of slavery here in New York, Democratic leaders are looking to do the same thing. We spoke to Assembly members Inez Dickens and Charles Barron about their bill to form the New York State Community Commission on Reparations Remedies. Mm-hmm. Assembly Member Barron, you're the sponsor of a bill that establishes the New York State Community Commission on Reparation Remedies and makes an appropriation of $250,000. What motivated you to write this legislation?
12: First of all, let me say that we have to keep the reparations discussion in the context of a larger issue. There are a lot of singular issue organizing we do, police brutality, reparations. But if there's no radical systemic change of this racist, parasitic, capitalist system, then even if we get reparations, we'll just be getting reparations without liberation and we'll be well paid and well fed and still on American plantation. So putting it in that context, I thought it would be important to go state by state. States should deliver the reparations, because trying to get a federal bill, is going to be incredibly difficult, but if each state could look at the history in New York State, you want to find out the history of slavery in New York State, just look at the street signs. When we go up to Albany, we get off at Rensselaer and and, uh, Albany, Rensselaer was a slaveholder. When I walked through my beloved community of East New York, Skank <laughs> Avenue, slaveholder, Van Sicklen, Dutch, slaveholder. So when I read the history of New York City and found out that New York City was the largest slaveholding city in the country, second only to Charleston, South Carolina, I said, we need to do reparations on a state level. So the bill is focusing on a community, a community commission, not a state commission. 14 members will be on that commission, nine will come from the community, five from the state, the governor's office, two from the senate and two from the assembly. But it should be a community commission and not studying reparations, because we already know the fact that we were enslaved and it damaged us to this day. But what are the remedies? So the commission's mission is to, one, how much should we get paid and what form should it be in? And two, who is eligible to receive it? You hear a lot of debates and arguments, should it go to an individual, should it go to the community? And let me just make one last point. We need to make, and this is a difficult, challenging distinction, between what we're supposed to be getting as taxpaying citizens, like education, housing, health care, that's not reparations. That's what we're supposed to get as taxpaying citizens. Reparations is a debt owed. Pay your debt. And when people say, well, how much do you owe us? If I say a billion, if I say a trillion, they say, ha, 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 we don't even have that in the budget. Well, you know what you could do? Just like we pay on the debt service in the state, you can pay a debt service to us, a billion each year until you pay up whatever we calculate as the amount. So that's what reparations, it's a debt owed. It's not something that they should give taxpaying citizens what they're supposed to get anyway.
1: And I, I just want to add to that because uh, somebody member Barron mentioned about New York State being a slaveholding state. Many people don't realize when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by the president, Abraham Lincoln, it was only supposedly to free the slaves in the states that had left the Union. In other words, states right. like New York that right. stayed in the Union, it did not Apply. relieve slavery at all in any of those states. So I just wanted to add that because we don't know Very the important. history. We don't know this. Right. And, and, and it did not stop slavery at all oh. in New York or Jersey or any other state that was, was stayed in the Union. It was only for those That's states as point. a punishment to That's those states. Point who left the union.
8: That's right. So, Assemblymember Dickens, you signed on as a co-sponsor yes. of this legislation. Other than, other than what you just mentioned, what else motivated you to sign on?
1: Because I believe, I've always believed in reparations. I believe that we are owed a debt. Um, the Irish felt they were owed a debt, and this is not to be racism, this is just talking about history, uh, for the potato famine. Um, the Jewish community for what happened during World War II or prior to World War II in Germany. So I have, and and I have no problems with any other nationality feeling that they are due reparations. Why should there be a problem when black people feel that reparations is due?
8: So Assemblymember Barron, what's the current state of this piece of legislation that you wrote?
12: Well, right now we have about 40 people signed on. For the second year in a row, it was voted out of the Government Operations Committee at the time uh, the newly appointed uh, Majority Leader, Crystal people Stokes, was the chair. So it was voted out of that committee. It is now sitting in the Powerful Ways and Means Committee. So the next stop, it gets to the floor. What we have to do now is double that 40 and get to 80 because it's 76 votes is what gets a bill to the floor in the state assembly. We're at 40 now, so this term, this session, we want to get to 80, get it to the floor, and then Senator Sanders, James Sanders, has the same as bill in the Senate. You know, and there's no reason why we got a black head of the Senate, a black head of the assembly, a so-called uh-huh emphasis on so-called progressive governor. Why don't we have this reparations bill in New York City? And the bill is saying the commission will recommend the remedies to the state assembly. It still has to be approved by the state assembly. So there's no reason why This shouldn't pass. And I just might want to add, on the national level, it's very disingenuous for now the Democrats to be talking about reparations when they, in fact, had control of the Senate and the uh, uh, House and the president, a black president in 2008, and John Conyers, who was the chair of the Judiciary Committee where his bill was in, may he rest in peace, never got a lighter day in 2008 when they could have passed it. Now we got a madman in the White House and we got a Republican Senate. Now you're talking about reparations? We're at the point in our state bill, it's in-house ways and means. I'm going to push it and get more sponsors uh, this year and try to get it to the floor, even if we have to do a one-house bill in the Assembly until the Senate catches up. Do you know that we have a $177 billion state budget, a 92 to $93 billion city budget? How do you have a state with $260 billion have some fiscal problems? And then the Jewish community was able to get out of the city council money for Holocaust survivors, and New York State had nothing to do with the holocaust but they got money out of the city council and they get it every year so don't talk to me about no fiscal problem and even on the national level you got 773 billion dollars for the military but you don't have every time we want something how you gonna pay for it do they ask you how they gonna pay for billion dollar wars and how did this nation get into a 20 trillion dollar debt and the city has a fifty billion dollar debt and the state has a fifty three billion dollar debt they have money it's about the will
8: uh... assembly member Barron, what would you say to someone who says well i'm not personally responsible for the atrocities committed against african americans and therefore i shouldn't pay reparations
12: i wasn't personally responsible for the atrocities committed against the japanese and in nineteen eighty eight ronald reagan gave reparations to the japanese for their internment for their internment in the 1940s. I'm not responsible for the Holocaust but the City Council is using my tax dollars to pay Jewish people who were affected by the Holocaust. I don't care if you came here last night. The nation owes someone a debt. Once you become a citizen of that nation that owes someone a debt, then you are responsible for paying that debt to people who have been affected. They only run this stuff to us. Not to other people.
1: And we're ready to answer the same question. We helped build this nation. I mean, it was built on our backs. That's right. It was our backs that it was built on. We were the ones that were beaten. We were the ones that were strung up and still are, by the way. That's That's nothing new. That's right. All you gotta do is just look at the paper. And and why shouldn't we? We help this is nation we built this is a state we helped build this is not someone else this is our we had the input of
12: blood sweat Sweat and and tears. tears and if those people say they don't want to pay the debt because they had nothing to do with our enslavement then don't reap the benefits because you are milking the benefits for our labor, we cleared the roads, we built the homes, we built the bridges, we built their forts, and we were agriculturalists. Africans were. When they came to New York in, in 1627, remember the Dutch New Amsterdam? They brought us here to clear the roads and teach them how to do agriculture, because the Dutch only knew how to do fur trading. We built the economy of this city, this state, and this country. So don't talk to us about why should you have to pay, then don't accept the benefits for our blood, sweat, and tears if you don't want to pay the debt.
8: So I I know we touched on this, and everything we said up till now basically leads to this question, why is the case for reparations so important in this day and age?
12: Well, one, we have to tell the story. Our children need to know the truth about this nation. Lincoln didn't free any slaves. He was a racist who wanted to import us, send us back to Africa. Christopher Columbus did not discover America. Indigenous people were already here. So the story is very important to say that the indigenous people, they stole this land and then they stole us from Africa to build the foundation of this racist capitalist system. Secondly, it's important now because our communities are in a crisis. We're in a a dangerous crisis in every social indicator. And it's time for this wealthiest nation in the world, one of the wealthiest states in the world, the wealthiest city in the world, to take care of the 40% poverty in the South Bronx, 30 and 40% 40 poverty in Harlem and in East New York and our median income is low, homelessness. They need to take care of that. That's the crisis. We paid the price with our blood pay the debt
1: reparations uh, the the, if if that was to be it put in place it would open the door for the truth to be told in education they've never really told the, the true story about slavery or about the history of the black man or woman the black families in this country I believe that the books could be rewritten and would be rewritten if that was done, if no more than the people were angry that, that you got reparations. You know, many of our own people, we go to school and we learn the wrong history. We learn that what everybody else did, and we know nothing about our own people and what we did, how hard we worked. Whether we're talking about uh, uh, Christmas Addicts, who took over a a boat or ship in the harbor, whether we're talking about um, Jane Doe, who was beaten and and worked in the fields, it would tell the true story, or the beginning, I should say, of of the true story of of the black family in this country
8: so i think it's important to recognize the distinction between reparations and reparation remedies and your bill specifically is asking for a commission on reparation remedies so what are the next steps if this legislation is written into law
12: well if this is written into law the commission will be set up, they'll get $250,000 to bring in professors on the economy and the impact on African people in New York City, to bring in all of the experts, and then after the experts are brought in, maybe for a year, and then make recommendations on remedies to the New York State Assembly. And those recommendations should be passed by the Assembly and the Senate, signed by the governor, and put into practice put into institutions and agencies so that we can then benefit for the work that our ancestors have done, the blood that was spilled. And I just want to let people know the African Holocaust is the worst Holocaust, along with the indigenous people, so-called Indians, known to humanity. We lost millions on the Middle Passage. We lost millions on the plantation experience, and we're losing millions now to police brutality, to poverty, to homelessness, to crime. So the greatest crime against humanity is to have us build this nation and then treat us less than animals, less than, less than human beings should be treated. The 13th Amendment said slavery shall be abolished except as a punishment for crime, thus the prison industrial complex.
8: So Assemblymember Dickens, what is the biggest obstacle to this legislation that you are co-sponsoring?
1: Our own minds. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest obstacle. Our own thinking. And I, when I say our own thinking, I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about any color. Or, or creed of, of an assembly member or the public. I'm talking about all of us, because some of us in our own communities see no need for, for uh, reparations okay. remedy. And so it's our own thinking. In, in other communities, they're never going to be, and I'm going to bring something else into this. You know, maybe I shouldn't, but I'm, because this is going to be something that's going to open the door for another segment. But we're talking about cannabis and the legalization of it, and the, the we're talking about money coming in, whether it's taxes, licenses, whatever, that would um, that would go into the communities that have been adversely affected. Well, obviously, that's the black and brown communities. And what's happening is now they're saying, well, why should it only go to those communities? You know, I mean, there's always been and it's racism that says you can't have it. It's just, that's that's, that's just a bum. And, you know, you can be racist against your own.
8: And I think we're going to have to just leave it there. Thank you both very much. And we'll be right back. Welcome back. It's been more than 400 years since the first Africans were kidnapped and imported to this new world. Though it is impossible to give accurate figures, some historians have estimated that six to seven million enslaved people were brought here during the 18th century alone. Many did not survive the passage. And by the end of the Civil War, some 3.4 million black people remained in bondage in spite of the Emancipation Proclamation. Today, there remains a large divide between Americans of different racial and ethnic backgrounds on the issue of reparations. A 2019 AP poll revealed that 74 percent of black Americans and 44 percent of Hispanics are in favor of reparations, compared with 15 percent of white Americans. We'll be right back, but first, let's hear what some of the 2020 Democratic candidates for president have said about reparations.
9: I believe we have to invest in those communities uh, that have been so hurt by racism. It doesn't have to be a direct pay for each uh, person, but what we can do is invest in those communities, acknowledge what's happened.
0: I would Do my best to
4: change the banking system to make sure that we end racism, that we pay attention to distressed communities, that people get the loans they need to make the investments they need.
0: about free cash payouts? No.
13: Remember, we're not talking about a gift to anybody. We're talking about mending what was broken. We're talking about the generational theft of the wealth of
4: generations of African Americans. And just... Crossing out a racist policy and replacing it with a neutral one is not enough to deliver it all. Harms compound, just like a dollar saved in its value compounds over time, so does the value of a dollar stolen. And that is why the United States must act immediately with investments in minority-owned businesses, with investments in health equity, with investments in HBCUs, and on the longer term, uh, look at reparations so that we can mend what is has been
1: I believe it's time to start the national full-blown conversation about reparations in this country. And that means I support the bill in the
9: House to appoint a congressional panel to, of experts, of people who are studying this, who talk about different ways we may be able to do it, and to make a report back to Congress so that we can, as a nation,
8: Do what's
5: right and begin to heal.
8: In the mid-1930s to lift America out of the Great Depression, the New Deal created huge economic programs sponsored by the federal government. These are the policies that eventually built what we now know as the middle class. We spoke with Professor Alan Singer of Hofstra University about the economic imbalances and the resulting call for reparations.
13: The more I studied the history of the United States, the more I came to realize that slavery and racism are at the core of American history. (laughs) Slavery in the city of New York, it's not plantation slavery, but it also can be very onerous. Not only did enslaved Africans build the infrastructure of the city, they actually changed the physical shape of Manhattan Island, expanding it east with landfill. They're creating forests. They're building the roads. They're dredging the harbor. They're building the, the docks. One of the reasons for gradual emancipation is so that the slaveholders can work the enslaved Africans for the next 25 years, getting free labor from them. Essentially, gradual emancipation was a way of compensating slaveholders for the loss of their enslaved African property. However, the enslaved Africans in New York were never compensated for hundreds of years of unpaid labor. A lot of the wealth that makes possible the growth and development of New York City in the 19th century, it's because of its complicity with slavery. Because of its location on the Gulf Stream, New York is the best port of call for the sale and the uh, distribution of slave-produced commodities. Cotton from the south is put on coastal vessels and shipped to the port of New York. Sugar from uh, the Caribbean is put on coastal vessels and shipped to the port of New York. Profits from sugar production, profits from cotton production, become the basis for the creation of Pennsylvania Railroad, the Long Island Railroad, AT&T. The main bank involved becomes the bank that becomes Citibank. While slavery ends, the racism of slavery continues, and that's what we see really continuing to the United States to this very day. During the New Deal, programs are created to help working people who have been uh, badly injured by the Great Depression. Those programs often exclude African-Americans. It carries over after World War II with the GI Bill. It guarantees veterans that they will have mortgage insurance, but they still must apply for the mortgages through local local banks. Well, in the New York region, African-Americans can't get mortgages to buy homes in many of these expanding suburbs. So what you created were virtually all white. In Manhattan, there is a, a, a program called Urban Renewal in the 50s and 60s, and it's a federal program. The African-American author James Baldwin, he cynically called Urban Renewal Negro Removal. and Unfortunately, it continues to today. In communities in Brooklyn, in communities in Harlem where you have gentrification, African Americans and now Latinos are being forced out of their own communities. So what you have is systematic racism creating the modern city. Education in the state of New York and in New York City, we see the shadow of slavery and the shadow of racism continuing to impact on people's lives. We have a problem in the United States today that more young black men are involved in the criminal justice system than get to go to college. So what we get is an educational system that holds people back, and then adding to that, people never catch up. It's like the gap becomes deeper and deeper financially the older they grow That's why it's crucial that we understand the history of slavery, why we understand the history of racism, because it undermines our ability to deal with social inequality today.
8: Today, the generational impact of slavery, along with hundreds of years of discriminatory economic policies, can be seen clearly in the wealth gap between black and white families in America. Historical economists say home ownership, for example, became one of the most direct paths to wealth creation in America. But the cards were stacked against black homeowners. Decades after it was instituted, the government-sanctioned policy of redlining still to this day impacts black Americans. Welcome back. When you ask yourself, what can I do? How can I make a difference? Maybe think of this next story. The Underground Railroad was a network of secret routes and safe houses established in the United States during the early to mid-19th century. These houses were instrumental, allowing 100,000 slaves seeking freedom to escape. So we want to end this show with a story about a building in Brooklyn a home local New Yorkers, activists, and historians are trying to protect, a home which is believed to have been a stop on the Underground Railroad and is a positive reminder of New York's role in Black history.
9: New York was part of the Underground Railroad, and what does that mean? The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 meant that the federal government was now saying that it would support the return of any fugitive slaves that were found. People in New York who wanted to be a part of assisting these runaways, they would have, for example, their barns, a home, a farm, someone's house, where they would offer shelter to those who were on their way to a safer
10: place. Brooklyn was strong supporters of slavery, uh, fervent supporters to the point of being traitorous to the United States. We say, oh, okay, New York was on the good side, you know, the South was on the bad side. No, the majority of Brooklyn was pro-slavery, blatantly racist. It was economic ties and ideological ties. New York, and Brooklyn in
9: particular even, was a very important port in the export of the Southern slave-produced products. So though the South was the place that you had plantations and you had large numbers, of enslaved people doing the agricultural work of picking cotton, bailing cotton. Many of the fortunes of the early Brooklyn industrialists and bankers
10: came through the profits from the system of slavery. A lot of our streets, a lot of our monuments, institutions are named after people who were slave owners, named after people who profited from slavery. I don't want to erase that history. That's part of our history too. Uh, but it only tells one side of the story.
2: This is what's happening. We have a home that was owned by prominent abolitionists that is set for demolition. And we have a way to save that home. 227 Duffield is a tangible, physical reminder of uh, American history. And of the part that was played by prominent people who were very courageous and put themselves on the line here in New York, in downtown Brooklyn, so that other people might literally be free. The house next door uh, to this home had a tunnel that connected both that house to this house. And we know that when um, authorities could knock on one door, then people were able to be smuggled into another home. And so that's why it's so significant that we we keep this home. It is the last of an entire area, an entire neighborhood of prominent abolitionists who were working to end slavery. And this is all we have left, this one house.
3: To me, what it would mean if Kisu 7 Duffield is preserved as a landmark, it's a victory black history here, but it's also a victory for people fighting against gentrification. Overall our goal is to preserve 227 Duffield as a historical landmark so it doesn't get demolished. We want it to become, you know, a museum. It's really important that we just keep black landmarks and black history visible. You guys can help us too. Everyone, you know, we're all in this together and we can stop
8: this. This conversation about reparations is an attempt to acknowledge and reconcile the past and to heal. We have only scratched the surface and we hope to bring you more in the future. I want to thank all of our guests and everyone who participated in this show and thank you for joining us for this special edition of Represent NYC on Manhattan Neighborhood Network. I'm Julie Walker, goodbye.